Okay, we're on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Social Innovation Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Troy Prince, the founder at Wall Street Bound, and a man I have known for, I was thinking before I started recording, two decades, two and a half? Just about. <laughs> That's weird, right? Anyway, Troy, how are you doing today? I'm well, I'm well, man. Thank you. Yourself? I am super. And where are you exactly right now? Uh, New York City, Upper West Side, the former heart of Corona Land. <laughs> nice. Can you give us a little bit of your background for context? Uh, I guess the quick version is uh, first gen Caribbean descendant, uh, raised in the Bronx, found Wall Street early, went to NYU Stern undergrad. By junior year, I knew I wanted to move to Asia for whatever crazy reason. Well, involved a girl. <laughs> Within a week of graduation, I'm on a plane. Tokyo, altogether eight years. Oh, wow. Subsequently, Paris, Spain, Vietnam for five years. I was an angel investor. And we'll get back to that, which is how I actually got back on this journey towards what I'm doing now and moved back to the States. Uh, just about Christmas would make two years. So how, how old are you? 20. <laughs> sure. No, really. How old are you? 49. 49. So you are what? That makes you six years younger than I am. I'm 50. I turned 55 this year, which seems like a weird thing for me. But mm -hmm. you were growing up in the Bronx, right? Can you just, for people that don't know, like what was it like growing up there? You know, there's two sides of that story. There's the public sure. story because it was the Bronx in the 70s, yeah. real estate uh, property owners burning down their buildings for insurance, oh, wow. Fort Apache, you know, the old yeah. movie. So there is that scary side that is, that is reality. But then there's stories like mine and others of tight-knit families, strong values, keeping kids out of trouble, doing their best. You know, it's it's a human, it's it's an American, it's a universal story of you, you, you work with within what you have. Um, so there are two sides of that story, and yes, there is that reality of the of that, that image that the Bronx has, um, but then you're going to have some very fond memories as well. And, you know, knock on wood, I've, I've done okay, and I, I, I am unique in certain ways, but certainly not in, 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 by, in, in far more. Yeah, and look, the idea is you should be less unique. I want to point this out, though, right? Again, it's something that a lot of people don't know about New York as well, is that I've always been kind of envious of kids that went to two of the best high schools, not just in New York City or New York State, but in the whole country, right? What did we say they were? Stuyvesant and Bronx Science. You're a Bronx Science kid, right? Correct. Say that first, please. <laughs> I love it. It's like Berkeley and Stanford, but worse. Can you talk about what it was like going to Bronx Science? And I, I want to get to college later, but like, how important was it to your mom and dad that you were educated? And like, how happy they were you were they that you were like at Bronx Science? Yeah, um, you know, it was everything, man. And I think for most families in general, everyone around the world can relate to this. You know, quickly, my, my five years in Vietnam, you know, Viet Vietnam, one of the poorest countries on earth. But on average, those families spend up to 30% of their incomes on education. Yeah. And so my parents being Caribbean, uh, you know, my mother was a teacher. Her mother was the secretary to the principal in St. Thomas, her island. And so it was always, it was never a question of, you know, of going to school. Not It was, you know, where and what were your majors? And so 
for us, you know, not being clearly not being wealthy, but my parents put together the money to put me through a juku to get to get me to pass that exam, and <laughs> so it was a big deal. Uh, path and and there is a certain level of exposure that comes with that and of course the value of having that brand on you so it it was a big deal but again it's you know education was always first and foremost in my family and you said yeah i mean it was in mine too and you know a lot of people don't know this i I always say there's a fallacy of like you've always been who you are today Mm. people don't understand that struggle do you know what i mean of like where you came from they just look at you and think always have been like this whatever this is Right. And it could be better than you were before, worse than you were before. Nobody really knows. Right. But there's always some kind of struggle that everybody's been through. I, I, yeah, man, that's that's real. But but, but imagine, you know, for, for people of color and a person from the Bronx, you know, we have a, a little bit of an extra hurdle or burden. But we'll get into that later. A little. I would say a lot. Right. And we can talk about how that manifests itself. But you said you graduated from college and went straight to Asia. Was that directly to Tokyo? No, um, I spent the first maybe six months or so goofing off in Taipei. Oh. I uh, yeah, I went to undergrad with with a lot of like Taiwanese rich kids and just end up just sort of getting sucked into that. Eh, let me check it out. And uh, but I knew it was Tokyo all along in my heart, though. And when you got to Tokyo, had you studied Japanese at all? Because you know, when I started working in Tokyo, I had already been through Dosha University a year abroad. And I studied Japanese in college for a couple of years. So for me, that was like the natural progression. But did you yeah. study before you got there or not? Um, not formally. I started teaching myself. Um, I was taking French up to sophomore year. Right. And then I got turned on to Japan. I was a finance major. This is not, you know, if I, I don't remember the dates exactly, but certainly around the time, 1990, when, uh, you know, Japan bought Rockefeller Center, Pebble, Pebble Beach. Beach. Yeah, yeah, and I'm like, I'm studying French. So I'm like, what? The, what am I going to do with that? And then What's of course, the point? I, yeah. Then I met a girl, and I just started. Um, so yeah, I remember I had a small dictionary, and I would just memorize pages and tear them out one by one until, you know, the dictionary was a fraction of itself. So I, I was teaching myself, but very informally. Right. And when you got to Tokyo, what was your goal? In other words, you know, you and I met each other because you were essentially a client of mine. I worked for you because you were at BGI and I was at, uh, where was I when we met? Was it Goldman Sachs? I can't remember anymore. I want to say Goldman or UBS. I, I, forget, I forget which one. No, one def- of I was two. definitely at Goldman because I was UBS next. But yeah, I was definitely at Goldman okay. Sachs when I first met yep, you. Yep, 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 Did you intend um, to get into like that or I, like how did that happen? Absolutely. I mean, by sophomore year, I was already cold calling like junior years at Solomon Brothers in Operations. And it's funny, quick story. The way I got to Tokyo was uh, the Solomon Brothers um, bond scandal, the primary primary dealer bond scandal, yeah. 1990. Warren Buffett, interim chairman. We hold a town hall meeting. And I buy my first suit and pair of shoes. And I tell myself, I'm going to meet this guy. <laughs> After the town hall, I go up to Mr. You know, go up to Mr. Buffett. Hey, I work in operations. I'm a junior at Stern. Blah blah blah. I want to go to Tokyo be a trader. I'm not even sure if he shook my hand or if he even looked at me. But he's like, "Yeah, talk to this guy." That's the worst Buffett impression ever. <laughs> <laughs> but what was the frame of reference for you back then? I mean, look, I want to get to Wall Street bound much later. But like, what was the frame of reference for you for Wall Street? You said something really great before, right? You come from the Bronx, which is how far yeah. from Wall Street? 
So yeah, I think it's exactly according to Google, eleven point three or eleven point five miles. And right. so yeah, maybe sophomore year in high school, there was a stock picking contest, and you know, I, I knew nothing about the markets, but for sugars and giggles, I ended up winning. And then not too long thereafter, uh, Jack Schwager's book came out, Market Wizards. I remember. And so after reading Market Wizards, I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life. I called Jack. He was still a he was a futures analyst at Prudential. And so I knew exactly what I wanted to do. It wasn't even trade. I wanted to be a prop trader. Right. And so by being in operations, the idea was upon graduation, I wanted to get on a desk. And that's I said, Mr. Buffett, you know, that's what I want to do. One of his lieutenants ended up introducing me to a gentleman by the name of Louis Faust, who was the head of Solomon Tokyo. And I landed, you know, I landed in Narita just sort of having that name in my pocket. Right. But how did you actually end up getting the job at BGI, which was also like the one of the premier, if not the premier investors at that time, right? So that's, yeah. So fast forward a few years. So I ended up you know, working for first Boston, Tokyo, moving back to the States, being on the U.S. equity block desk. At age 24, started and launched my first hedge fund, which was, you know, not really a hedge fund, barely 100 grand AUM trading for my parents' basement. <laughs> that it. didn't work. And so, um, yeah, fast forward, man, a couple more experiences. I was at Daiwa Securities, you know, the number two shop, as you remember, in town. Yeah. And one of the traders I did the P&L for uh, in that first job in Tokyo at First Boston was uh, Richard O'Doy, and Richard was the head of the desk at the time we met at BGI. So we had a relationship, and um, I'm not sure how much that played into it. I'd, I'd love to say, of course, it was my amazing skills and talent and background, but I knew the head of the desk, and that's how I landed at BGI. That I'm sure it helped. But I want to I have this sort of thematic conversation throughout the rest of this uh, recording, and that is, you have to get exposed to people that are in this business or have to figure out a way to get exposed to people that are in the business because otherwise you have no frame of reference, right? In other words, the only reason why I ended up on Wall Street was, again, grew up super poor. But when I was in college my junior year, some dude that graduated the year before me came back and said, this is the greatest job you'll ever get. And I'm like, what is that? And they talked about the analyst programs that they had. He was actually at Kidder Peabody, which was like some... You know, oh, wow. But he was like... Your friends will hate you because you'll miss dinner all the time. And I was just like, I got to have that. that. That's the job for me. Mm. Got to do this because it's energy and trading and fun and stuff like that. Yeah. But again, if I hadn't been at that one meeting, I probably would have ended up like at law school or something, which would have been well, boring that's to tell the, you. That's the story, Mike. That's, you know, and I, I can't wait till we get to it in the context of Wall Street Bound. You know, what you're talking about is essentially social capital. It's exactly. That, social, that network that we of color largely do not have, you know, you know, thank the heavens I went to NYU Stern. And so, yes, of course, you know, Wall Street was strongly around me, but had it not been for that, you know, I don't have, I didn't grow up with uncles, brothers, friends, congregation members, golf club members who were in the game to say, Hey, you know, this kid's maybe got something, come check it out. And so by the grace of the sky, I just came across it on my own and something struck a chord and I stuck with it. But to the degree, you know, I, I can look back and I can honestly say I've never even had a mentor. And again, you know, that may be on me or not, but generally that's not the story for those of us um, who, who are getting into it. But, you know, we'll, we'll get there. But so my story was a little bit different, but, but by the grace of, of the sky, I came across the street 
knew exactly what I wanted to do and was just, you know, a, a heat-seeking missile th- thereafter. What were your experiences like in Tokyo? In other words, I, I can probably imagine, although I don't presume to understand completely what it's like in New York or in the rest of the United States. Frankly, I haven't lived there in 30 years, right? But I had my own sort of what I call visual minority experiences in Japan, which was weird, right? Because in America, I never stood out. I was just some Caucasian dude walking around. Nobody ever even noticed me. But what were your experiences like in Tokyo? Did you somehow feel less out of place there than you did in the U.S.? Uh, absolutely not. It was the opposite. I remember at some point wanting to consider, or I was considering changing passports. It was the first time in my life I remember the distinct feeling of just being accepted for who I was. In Tokyo, um, yeah? In Tokyo. You yeah. know, I absolutely remember considering giving up my passport, just that feeling of like people see me as a gaijin first. So all of us, no matter where you're from. Same category. Yeah. Same category. Secondly, me working at Daiwa Securities. I mean, it was particularly then because it was a large and famous Japanese shop. But all throughout my, my three different experiences, uh, you know, being a shokemang, you know, being a trader. Yeah. It was very clear to me that people, that's what they cared about first. You know, what are you doing in our country? Who are you? Clearly, you know, Japanese would always think it's got that image of erito to you, like some elite kind of thing. And that was always it. All that other backstory. And I remember Japan just like my blackness was not the first thing people noticed about me. And that was the first time I experienced that. And it was just something really refreshing. We talked about this a little bit offline, but did any of your non-black colleagues, like just other dudes from like London or from the United States ever tell you that they started at least to understand this concept oh, of hell being a visual yeah. minority? Like, what the fuck? I'm not, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not a criminal. Why are people looking at oh, me like that? Oh, hell yeah. Thing? Hell yeah. I mean, when I first, you know, I'm not sure when you first landed. I visited in 90, summer, sophomore year, but I landed in 92. And this is when Japan is just really beginning to open up. And uh, I remember, you know, renting an apartment, you know, you would see signs, no gaijin, certain bars, no gaijin. And I absolutely remember having conversations with some of my white friends of like, oh, I kind of maybe think I get it now. Um, (laughs) Kind of. Yeah, it absolutely came up that, yeah, this is something different. And it wasn't for that experience. A lot of these guys would, you know, would never experience anything like that. So to, to some strange degree, I was grateful for guys to experience it and share it with me because it's again you know it's um you know being in the skin is the only way to really experience it yeah i mean look i'll share a story with you right and i have no resentment about this at all i understand it right because i understand what it's like to at least for me to have felt different and out of place but you know i told you every sunday night one of my buddies and i would go see a movie in kinza you know back then we were getting paid pretty well And maybe we were in a pair of shorts and, you know, like a t-shirt, but we weren't dressed dirtily at all. And, you know, we'd get into a crowded elevator and people would like clutch their bags and reach for their wallets. And my buddy and I would just look at each other like, the likelihood of us stealing anything from you is so low because, you know, back then, like I said, we were paid pretty well. We weren't going to, we were making more than they were, but it was just that feeling of fear, just innate fear. And, and. You know, again, because we live this life of white privilege, to us it was more like, oh, okay, I know how that feels now. But I can't imagine what it's like to live like that every day. And I want to I move every into Every day. The, I'm 50, Mike, and it's yeah, still the same day, old story. Right? 
And I, I want to kind of get into this concept, right? Because you've said this, and I want to make sure I have the words right, but this idea that like IQ and intelligence are equally distributed, right? But opportunity is not for sure. Yeah. So let's talk about Wall Street Bound and how does it make a difference in the opportunity department? What is it and what are you trying to accomplish? So I would say, broadly speaking, for any of your audience, it's the idea of, for whatever reason, based on your sex, how you look, your weight, your nation of origin, etc. For whatever reason, if you've ever felt that your talent has been overlooked, um, yeah. that you, your, your intelligence, your ability was not being fully appreciated, or that a certain stigma that might be associated with you, like you being white back at those days in Tokyo and people clutching their bags, is not reflective of the, the larger reality. And so me being from the Bronx, clearly knowing that there's smart, hungry kids around with you know my family, I'm an eldest of five, my congregation, kids I played tennis with, kids on the block. But for some strange reason, you know, my 20 years plus on Wall Street, I'm like one of one of few, if not at several times, the only one in the room. And it's like, why? And so generally, if it ever it comes up, it's like, oh, we can't find them. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I've got five in my family. I'm a <laughs> double degrees from Columbia. What do what, what you so? But it's always something. And we can get into that deeper. And, you know, essentially we know what it is. But that aside... That is what it is. Human bias is a natural phenomenon. And so I focus on what I can do, what we can do. And that is building intentional pathways to connect the talent that's out there that does not have that social capital you spoke to earlier or does yeah. not have the, uh, the pathway, the bridge into these um, opportunities. And specifically in this case, because Wall Street's been good to me because I, you know, I, I know what's possible, the life I've lived, and of course, living, growing up 11.5 miles from the greatest economic engine in the history of man, yeah, it makes sense to me to connect these two worlds because otherwise that talent does not ever get seen. And so I think there's a value add to Wall Street, there's a value add to society in getting all hands on deck and opening up doors. Ray Dalio speaks about diversity of thought all the time. You know, If yeah. everyone in the room has the same idea, same thought, how do you expect superior returns? Impossible. When I first joined Morgan Stanley, right, I was in the controller's department in fixed income. And in the other room, so a room literally like across the wall from us, were the equity controllers. And those guys and gals were jerks. I mean, they weren't really, but that's what we thought about them. And they thought the same thing about us. And I learned back then that like, that's what I used to call the other side of the mountain syndrome. If those people are on the other side of the mountain. They must be dangerous and scary. And there was no difference between any of us, right? And I think it's no. the same thing here. You've got to just like get everybody together. And, you know, I'm not like a, I'm not like a big hippie about this, but I really believe that diversity from the get-go is important because then it just becomes normal. And I want to, I want to share, cause, because you, you said this, I want to share another story with you about my daughter who went to an international school in, um, in Bangkok. So just bear with me with this, right? Because this is the perfect example. She had a friend who I won't name who was, you know, was dark skinned. And I had to go pick him up at the train station and I had never met him before. And I said to my daughter, how am I going to know who the guy is? 
And she said, uh, he'll be wearing a Red Sox cap. Do you, do you understand? Because in her world, that diversity of skin color and country origin didn't mean anything. It was so normal. Yeah. That it was that like that, that thing wasn't the defining factor. The way to figure out who the dude was, was his baseball cap. Right on. Right I just on. thought that was awesome. But that has to get built into, I think, every part of our lives, right? And that, that's, I think, part of what you're saying. We said this to you before. I said this to you before. When you walked onto my trading floor, I asked you, how many other black guys, I mean, how many black guys were there? And you're like, uh, none. And I'm like, no, one. That was you. <laughs> and that was you. And the idea is, how do you then change that? How do you use this Wall Street bound? How do you create that opportunity? So what are you actually doing to create that opportunity for these kids but, but not just, you know, kids of color, but kids that haven't had that advantage or haven't had the opportunity. What are you doing actively to make sure that they get it? I launched Wall Street Bound last summer uh, with a program I called Introduction to Wall Street. 20 to 25 hour exposure, beginning with history, historical context. You know, most people don't know that it was actually slaves who actually physically built the wall of why Wall Street is named Wall Street. It was the barrier between the English and the Dutch settlements. And so between historical context, a broad introduction to the industry, asset classes, career paths, some technical work, you know, uh, starting to touch on modeling, of course, a fair amount of soft skills, communication, resume, mm. interviews, how you dress, sit up straight, look in the eye, don't say like, a fair amount of professional presentations that we call a day in the life of. I think it's very important. You know, visuals are important. It's important for these for these young people to see themselves represented, you know, besides just myself. Right. Um, and so a day in the life of is the idea of having professionals come through that look and sound like them. So that's the first. And then we have a longer training that, that I call Wall Street Direct, which is largely aimed at recruiting and training urban college students for summer internships. Summer internships are the vast majority is the, is the, the major door in to full-time offers uh, this day and age. And so firms, if you're getting an offer as a senior, more than likely they already know you the past two summers. And so that's sure. A, a training that we're doing to open up that pathway to them. Because again, A, to even know about these programs, B, to apply on your own from whatever, Indeed or Monster.com, it just doesn't happen. No way. Um, and last but not least, we just announced, not just, in June, a new program that I'm very excited about uh, called the Diverse Trader Training Program, where uh, we have proprietary training partners, in this case, a prop shop called Maverick that focuses on foreign exchange and stock options and the training is delivered virtually and everyone is trading virtually and we're giving program participants access to live trading uh, trading capital once they pass a series of exams and uh, demo demo count uh, trading they start off with uh, $25,000 accounts and over the course of a year work up to managing $250,000 each is it real the money? Are they trading live money? money? Real money. So real they're, not money. they're not paper trading. Well, initially it's part of the um, a part of the approval process, but once they get past the approval process, past the interviews, they start off with live accounts, real money, and if wow. they pass, of course, if they're hitting their numbers, sure, sure, uh, sure. the program within a year is expected to take them to two hundred fifty thousand. And you know, this is uh, underrepresented students, largely 
without the typical Wall Street bloodline connections. But I'm making the bet that, you know, again, as you said at the top, talent and IQ are distributed. Opportunity is not. And we know that that what it takes to succeed in life, what it takes to succeed on Wall Street, what it takes to succeed in the markets is not where you summer. It's not what sports you play. It's not it's none of those things, especially when it comes to the raw ability to learn, manage risk, make money. And so I'm making the bet as I'm confident to do so that that talent is, exists in the Bronx as well as I know it does in the poorest parts of Saigon or Bangkok. Yeah. But like, what's the challenge here for you for running Wall Street Bound? In other words, how do you, you don't just wake up one day and the guys from Maverick call you and say, hey, I've heard about you. We're going to set up this program. Like, how does, how does that work? How do you even get that thing to happen? Yeah, man, to be honest, it's, it's the proverbial, if I knew then what I knew now, I mean, <laughs> I'm a year and a half in, and I thought, you know, I've got this great idea, I put up a shingle, and the world would be pounding down my door to throw money at me, and it's right. clearly not the case. So the, it's the combination of spreading the message, um, having these conversations. Again, thank you for uh, lending me your platform. My pleasure. But that really comes down to the ability to convert that into donations. You know, as an IRS recognized nonprofit, you know, I, I only able to do the work and support the mission, much less scale the mission with the support of the public. And I've been doing this a year and a half and haven't paid myself a penny yet. But um, the main hurdle is, is fundraising. And at the same time, as a startup, you know, startup world, Mike, you know better than I. Startup is a startup. And so it's a matter of resources and time. And given time, again, I'm confident that once I have those first few, you know, I'm in MVP stage in your world, you would call it. Um, This is a pilot. But once I find those first few kids from wherever they may be, start putting up some numbers and they're like, whoa, you don't look like the typical money manager. And it's like, yeah, of course. What does a typical money manager? But we'll leave that conversation for another time. So what, what does that mean, though? In other words, do you have partners that you can lean on for this? And if I'm a kid, you said urban college students. What does yes. that really mean? Like, how do they find you? How do you find them? How many can you take in a year or in any particular cohort? Yeah. How does that work? Good question. Thank you. So I decided to start off with the City University of New York uh, we know it here as CUNY. It's CUNY, the yeah. largest public university system in America. Wow. Uh, on average, there are, including continuing education, about 450,000 students matriculate. But because it, it's a public, large public C university, you know, it's very well known here to be a lot of, uh, by far, first-gen students, uh, largest population, student population of color, and so I was very intentional in, you know, what kind of schools I wanted to knock on the door and cold call. And clearly the schools that cater to these populations are hungry and happy to have the opportunity to partner with a person, with an organization like myself, with the express idea of building these bridges, getting these students aware, getting them smarter about what they need to do to prepare to even get those interviews, much less to get into those doors. And so they're all very happy for me to say, hey, this is free to the school, free to the students. I'm trying to put your school and your students on that map. And so they're very happy to have those conversations with me. But it just started with me knocking on doors. I love it. So how can people find you? WallStreetBound.org. 
That's one word. Again, wallstreetbound.org. Feel free to visit us there. Twitter, wallst underscore bound. And uh, find me on LinkedIn, Troy Prince, C-A-I-A. I'm a um, Kaya charter member. Troy Prince on LinkedIn. Website, wallstreetbound.org. And Twitter, wallst underscore bound. If I can shamelessly plug myself, certainly come visit, take a look at what we're doing, and feel free to press one of the donate buttons. Yeah, look, this has been a great conversation, Troy. I really want to thank you for doing this. You and I have, uh, like I said, we've known each other for 25 years, but we're on separate sides of the planet. So just getting this organized was difficult. So I really appreciate you making the time to do this. And uh, we'll put links in the show notes so people can find you. If there's an email address, you don't have to say it now. You can give it to me, and I'll put that in, in the show notes as well. But I really want to thank you for doing this, dude. Appreciate it. That's easy. That's info at wallstreetbound, one word, dot org. Awesome.